Welcome to Overtime, presented by Vital Seat, where we explore the careers of world-class athletes, their playing careers, and what they made of their lives once they retire. How does a young man from Roslyn, New York, become one of the most flamboyant, popular, skilled American soccer players ever, and get to play with a breakthrough team having the world's greatest player as a respected teammate. Shep Messing defines the word individual. Efficient, smart, defiant, rambunctious, unconventional, wild, unrepentant, courageous, emotional, confident, and stylish. Messing has and always will be his own man, albeit still a great teammate, husband, friend to all around him, and a pioneer in his sport. Hello, Mr. Messing. How are you today? Lynn, it is my pleasure, and I'm thinking clearly about it. That absolutely is the most scintillating introduction I've ever gotten. So thank you. And it is well, well deserved and earned, by the way. Okay, let's start. Rosalind, New York. Okay, you move there from the Bronx when you're two years old. Your father, Elias, is a lawyer. Your mom and a physical education teacher. Your brother, Mark, is one of your biggest influences. Now, playing sports was a big part of your family life. Your dad was actually a very good baseball player. But as a profession, the expectations weren't quite there, were they? Lynn, when I think back to those times, and I wouldn't trade them for anything, uh, I'll get back to the question because you asked me, do I wish I played now when American players are playing at big clubs in Europe? And I say, absolutely not. The, the journey, the ride I had, I wouldn't trade uh, for anything in the world. So you mentioned my family. And yes, we were all athletic. But ironically, sports were low on the totem pole. Much more of a, uh, much more focus on education and music. I came from a musical family with an aunt who was one of the first women conductors in Europe. Uh, an uncle who was a professional musician, and academics always came first, and then music and sports last. So it was organic. Did I love to play ball? I love to play ball. I played stickball. I played baseball. I played basketball, American football. And those were the days, Lynn, when I'm one of five kids and you'd go out after school or on the weekend, and you just had to be home when it got dark, right? My parents didn't know where we were. We were just playing ball. I'll segue into how I got into soccer because I wasn't born to play soccer. I never saw a soccer ball until I was 16 years old. So what happened was at my high school, I was a running back in football, a point guard in basketball, shortstop in baseball. And we had a severe football injury and they canceled the football program. So the soccer coach comes up to me and he said, look, I need a, I need a goalkeeper. I've watched you play as a point guard in basketball. 
shortstop in baseball, running back in football, and I know you're a little bit crazy. Yeah. That that's the that's <laughs> the recipe for a goalkeeper. And that's the first time, Lynn, that I ever ever touched a soccer ball, and I, I found out I was pretty good at it. Now, a couple of things, first of all. Um, the individuality of Shep Messing begins at home. It's kind of defined by your pet preference. Um, you are what's known as a herptologist. Explain what that is and what it kind of did, said about Shep at a very young age. That's a great segue into my being a goalkeeper and having a life in soccer. Herpetology is the study of reptiles and amphibians. And when I was a young kid, I was reckless. I was a little wild. I liked to camp out. And early, when I was eight, nine, ten years old, I'd love being in the woods trying to catch snakes, harmless snakes, or a box turtle, uh, or or a bullfrog. I'd be fascinated by by the stealth of these animals. And, and I'll fast forward many years later, and not too many people know, except for my teammates, my nickname was Snake. They ah. called me Snake. So I, I had a collection as a young child of harmless snakes and turtles and tortoises. I was always a little bit of a businessman. So at one point, I had a, a king snake that ate mice and I'd go to the pet shop and I'd buy a mouse and I'd charge the kids in the neighborhood 50 cents to come watch me feed the snake. <laughs> One day my mother comes up to me after school and she said, I found out why all these kids are coming to our house every Saturday. I want you to get the snake out of the house. So that was the end. Uh, but I still have those pets today in my home right now. And you had them throughout your career. Um, now, as an athlete, you, you liked individual sports. You started off as a wrestler, believe it or not, correct? And, I mean, obviously that translated into kind of becoming a goalkeeper who was an individual into his own island out there on the soccer field. Um, at Wheatley, you have a coach, Bill Stevenson, who kind of was an old Claire B kind of a character, uh, describe what the influence he had on you and your life. Yeah, Bill Stevenson, for me, is a classic in terms of what a coach should be. And, and Lynn, we see very few of that today in terms of play hard, play fair, sportsmanship, right? It's a different generation now in 2022 with showboating and yapping at the referees and and – I grew up with Bill Stevenson as a mentor to say, I want you to play hard. Don't be a hot dog. Be a good teammate. Shake the referee's hand and don't ever disrespect an opponent. So for me, every, every athlete, Lynn, and, and you've spoken and had many great, great athletes that you interact with, there's always that one coach in their life. So for me, Bill Stevenson was that guy. He just set the bar for me in terms of what's acceptable and what's expected. Now, again, you alluded to goalkeeping and, you know, the position itself was one that kind of had an allure to you. And one thing I have to ask about, was it true that at Wheatley at one, one year, your football team never scored a point? Is that true? 
Yeah, that, that's what happened, and that's why I went over and, and switched to soccer, right? The football team never crossed midfield. <laughs> we were terrible. <laughs> and, and, and again, they had an injury. They shut down the program, and that's when Bill Stevenson reached out for me and, and helped to mold me. But you've touched on it, the, the individuality of the position. I love being on a team and helping a team but I wanted to be responsible for me and think of the other sports I played. I was also a pole vaulter in track and field. At one point held the state record wrestling, the ultimate individual one V one sport, right? You're on the mat alone and goalkeeper. Yes. You are certainly part of the team, but you're the villain. You're the anti-hero. Everybody's cheering for goals and you're the guy out there preventing them. So that that being part of a team, yet totally having to rely on yourself, nobody back in that goal with me when that shot is coming. It's just me. And, and I always had an attraction to that. Now, did that play into the fact that you as a person were just an individual and your own personality, every aspect about you was just strictly, distinctly Shep. Was that all part of the personality? I think about that often, Lynn, because I, I always taught my children and I grew up, life's biggest success for me was going to the beat of your own drummer, right? I, I grew up in a household with, with two fantastic parents who said, be brave, don't be affected by peer pressure or anything else. You just, you just be yourself. Follow the beat of your own drummer. I had that older brother you mentioned, Mark, a tremendous athlete, who in high school, he had a beard, a goatee. And the wrestling coach said, you're not allowed to wrestle with a beard. So Mark didn't shave the beard. He taped it up. He taped it up like you tape your ankle. You know, he just wouldn't be shaved the beard. He'd rather endure the pain of taping over it every time he stepped on the mat. So I, I think we're all a product of, of how we're brought up, plus our normal DNA. And we were always brought up in my family to be individuals, speak your own mind, don't be afraid of a challenge, and don't let peer pressure affect you. Now, you wind up going to NYU. And NYU, you have a pretty good career. You guys are pretty good. Um, you actually get your first taste of modeling and photography. You're on the cover of the NCAA soccer manual for that year. Um, you have a coach. Um, you're at NYU. You describe yourself as tough, fearless, bold. And um, you wound up having a good year. And then you have another coach by the name of George Vargas who kind of guides you, but um, it kind of ends unceremoniously. What happened at NYU? <laughs> First, I want to give kudos to, to George Vargas. I talked about Bill Stevenson. There's also, I think, in any, any athlete's life, their defining moments that change the trajectory of their career, right? And, and I was a freshman at NYU. They had a senior goalkeeper, a 
a great Cuban guy, Emilio Escaladas, we'll never forget him, was a good friend. He was the starting varsity goalkeeper. And we went to training camp preseason in Kingston, New York. And there was a moment in the game. I was in, Emilio played the first half. George Vargas put me in, see how the young freshman could do. And I made a play where I stopped a point blank shot and lightning, I got up and I caught the rebound. Bang, bang. Point blank. I make the save. It rebounds out. He blasts it to the upper corner, and I hold on to it. And after the game, George Vargas said, you're my starting goalkeeper, right? So that was the moment that changed the trajectory. <laughs> it, it, it did go badly at NYU. Uh, I was a party guy. <laughs> I rode my motorcycle. That was my next segue. That was my next segue because party has to find Chet Messing wherever he's gone at every level. I have fun, Lynn. I have fun. It's how I played the goal. It's how I played in the goal. Aggressive, having fun, crowd, enjoying it. But I rode my motorcycle, commuted to NYU, got in trouble, typical freshman Friday night parties, and it was a moment, I don't know whether it was public or even you know about it, but but because you seem to know everything, Lynn. But I had a roommate, Randolph Bear III, and I think I was trying to coerce him into giving me his homework. And we lived in the dorm, Silver Hall, in the second floor. And somehow I ended up hanging him outside the balcony <laughs> and, and trying to get his homework. And even though I'm a goalkeeper and I have good hands, I dropped him. <laughs> and, and so NYU sort of asked me to leave, and, and, and that's what I did. Now, in the meantime, you get an invitation to try out for the 1972 U.S. Olympic team. And let's, let's put this into perspective, because in 1971-72, America had never had a team in the World Cup, had never had a team qualify for the Olympics. So... You saw an opportunity to do something that no American team had ever done before. What was it like getting that invitation, and what did it mean to Shep Messick? Lynn, I still think back to it today. I gave a speech to kindergarten through fourth graders two weeks ago out here on Long Island, where I still am. And the principal was doing an Olympic theme reading. Uh, challenge for these kindergarten through fifth graders. He asked me if I'd speak as an Olympian uh, to the class. Class, there were 400 kids all together. And I held up a soccer ball and I gave a speech to these kids, which was true. I said, when I was 10 years old, I dreamt of going to the Olympics and I had an Olympic party in my backyard in Roslyn. Different events, high jump, broad jump, I won. And all I knew at 10 years old, I dreamt of being an Olympian. And I told the children at this school, there are two things I want you to think for the rest of your life. First of all, dream big. And second of all, don't ever give up, right? Dream big and don't ever quit. The principal loved the speech. And back to your question, I'll never forget getting that envelope in the mail with the U.S. Olympic Committee five-ring seal on it, inviting me 
to try out. And that was a function of having been an All-American at NYU. So that reinforced for me that moment when I was 10 years old, when I got that invitation in the mail, I thought to myself, okay, I'm dreaming big. I'm never going to quit. I'm going to go for it. And, and fortunately, uh, I got there. Now, the journey there was not that easy. And um, at times, when you were trying out, um, things didn't quite go as well as you wanted it to. And you began training like you'd never trained before. You call it your obsession, the obsession. Tell us about a little bit of those training methods where you would literally dive on, dry, on driveways, on concrete, and you did everything you possibly could to push yourself to get this ultimate goal. Lynn, again, I'll go back to that speech, dream big and never give up. The first Olympic trial, I, m I mentioned I play basketball. I love basketball. I love hoops. And so in trying to get in shape uh, for that Olympic tryout, I was playing a lot of basketball, half court, 3v3, right? And a week before the tryout, I turned my ankle. You know what a, a turned ankle in basketball is. I couldn't walk. My, my ankle was like a balloon. I iced it. I had a week to go. I couldn't do it. I went to Philadelphia for the tryout. Um, I, I wasn't going to miss the tryout. My ankle was swollen. I taped myself up. I tried to go on the field. I couldn't play. I, I mean, I couldn't play. And so I got back to New York knowing I didn't make it at that tryout in Philly. And I said, I'm not going to quit. Who could I call? Who can I explain that I was hurt? Who can I get to give me a second chance? And I never gave up. And I finally reached the mayor in St. Louis who had watched me play in college. And that's where the next, the final tryout was going to be in St. Louis at Southern Illinois University, home of Walt Frazier. Right. So he allowed me to come to that tryout and I had little money. I was healthy. I was in shape. I did the training you just alluded to. I said, I've got to be the best, the toughest, the most aggressive I could be. This is my shot. I'm not going to get another shot. So I spent three months hardening my body up, diving in my driveway, diving in the street. Uh, soaking my hands in ice water, getting them near a hot flame. I wanted to toughen my body up and stay focused on how good I had to be. I only had one more shot. And I got out there in St. Louis, and I'm a long-haired, hippie-type kid, and the coach, Bob Gelker, he's like right out of the military crew cut. <laughs> I'm wearing a flowered yellow T-shirt, so... I played well, Lynn. I played well. I played lights out. I didn't have money uh, for a hotel that last night. So uh, I'll never forget being at the airport in St. Louis. I slept at the gate uh, that night. I had an early flight back to New York in the morning. And I woke up in the morning. That newspaper stand is right there by the gate. I buy the paper, St. Louis Dispatch, open it up. And I read the Olympic team has been selected. My name's there. I, I'm, I get emotional talking about it to you now. You got to dream big and never quit. And I didn't quit. And, and I got there. 
and, and that was the journey you just talked about. We now have to go through qualifying for two years to actually make it to the Olympic Games. Uh, and we did that as well. Now, you've always been a guy that's pushed his luck. Um, and one of the things you decided to do at the same time, literally, was as a junior college, college transfer, you applied to Harvard. Now, I don't think Harvard had ever taken a junior college transfer before. And you say, okay, I'm dreaming. I'm doing big. I'm going for Harvard. And you get in. You're there. Now, your dad thinks, okay, you know, enough of this soccer, enough of this sports thing. He's going to be the lawyer I want him to be. Describe that Harvard experience. Well, you just... You just hit it out of the park with that, right? I, I said to myself, okay, I'm done with Nassau Community College. I had gone there, there after getting kicked out at, at NYU because Bill Stevenson was now the coach there, and my mother was a professor there. So I had to finish the associate degree, the two-year degree, and now go on, where do I apply? Well, again, my speech to the kids, shoot for the dream. I, I said, Harvard. I know all about Harvard. I want to go to Harvard. I had a friend there that I went up to visit and loved the campus, loved the school, and I applied. But I'll tell you, the soccer story there is just as, as interesting because Harvard didn't recruit me. They didn't know they had an Olympic goalkeeper in soccer applying for admission. And when I got there, I'm watching the soccer team on the field train and I wanted to stay in shape obviously because I'm in the middle of Olympic qualifying games in, in Jamaica, Trinidad, Costa Rica, El Salvador. So I go up to the coach walking by the field and I said, coach, I'd, I'd, I'd like to uh, play on the team. And he said, I'm sorry, we have a goalkeeper. Um, I'm good. I don't need you. And, and I'm not, I'm, I'm really not a braggadocio, but I said, well, I'm the Olympic goalkeeper. I mean, take a look at me. <laughs> so I had a great time at Harvard because, because academically, uh, a fantastic place. And, and my team, it was the first time really where I played with a completely diverse ethnic team. We had an Olympian from Gambia who was my roommate, an Olympian from Nigeria, uh, an England international Serbian, Croatia, Jamaica. It was the United Nations. And we had a great team, went to the Final Four uh, two times, never won it, uh, got knocked out in the semifinals where I picked up an award, most valuable player in the tournament. But anybody out there listening, I, I recommend go for Harvard. <laughs> go for it. Now, when you're at Harvard, uh, you happen to do something else that affects the rest of your life. Uh, you met your wonderful wife, Arden. And is it true, for your first date, you were seven hours late? <laughs> I don't know. That, that gets skewed a little, that story. <laughs> uh, but, but I'll tell you what happened. Um, I had met her in Roslyn when she was 14. And maybe I was 16, 17. Just in passing, I was friends with one of our older brothers. And I think many times it's the yin and the yang. She knows nothing about sports. 
zero to this day. So she's going to school in Boston. She hears I'm going to school at Harvard and she tries to find me. How does she try and find me? She goes to MIT on the riverbank, not Harvard. She goes to MIT and she starts asking people if, do you know Shep Messing? <laughs> I have no idea how she found me, but eventually she found me and had the to call me and say, listen, there's a concert. I'd, I'd, I'd like you to buy tickets for us to go together. So here's where we get to the seven hour uh, late. And I'm not yeah. proud of this. I'm not proud of this moment <laughs> that I'm about to tell you. But I said, I, I don't even remember what you look like. I, I, I met you five years ago. You want me to buy tickets for a concert and we're going to go? So I asked her to meet me at a certain place. And my plan was I was going to like walk by and, and see who she was, see if I recognized her. So I guess I walked back and forth a bunch of times before I, I said, okay, let's do this and took her to the concert. <laughs> but anyway, okay. So this long, arduous journey to qualify for the Olympics was something that was, you know, not easy to do. And no American team had ever done it before. But in Miami one time, there came, there came, I believe it was Miami, anyway, Gelker comes up to you and says that he wants you to do something that you don't want to do. Now, you wind up doing it. And that after that, as soon as you did it, you basically said to yourself, I'm never going to conform like this again. Describe that to us. Yeah, you got it. You and and the first time I did it, and I obviously tell you what it was, I vowed never to do it again. And when we reached the final Olympic Games in Munich, and he asked me to do it again before we walk out in the parade, I flipped him off and said, "No, I won't do it." So what he wanted me to do in Miami was shave my sideburns. He he felt that they were too long. I looked like a hippie, had long hair, and and I, I loved Bob Gelker, but he was anti-Shep Messick, right, just in his character profile. And I shaved my sideburns before that game in Miami. I vowed never to do it again. And the next time he asked me to do it was the night before we were going to walk in as part of the U.S. Olympic team in Munich Stadium in the parade, wearing your red, white, and blue. He told me to shaved my sideburns, and I, I flipped them off and said no. So he benched me <laughs> for the opening game. Now, let's go back to that again. The opening ceremonies. Gelker says to you guys, I don't want you marching in the opening ceremony parade. I mean, and you look at him and say, are you kidding? Oh, I, you know what? I mean, I, I, that's inconceivable. Once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, the first U.S. Olympic soccer team and he doesn't want you to be in the opening ceremonies parade? I mean, how did you react to that? <laughs> I got benched because I marched. And I said, <laughs> look, I, I said, Bob, no, no offense. We, we come from two different worlds, all right? You're a great coach, but me and my teammates, we're the guys who 
got us here. <laughs> You're telling me shave my sideburns and don't march in, in the parade. That's that's never happening. But my history with him, Lynn, goes back before that because there was a seminal moment in a game where we were tied. El Salvador, only one of us could go on. We had split our game, so we had to play one game in a neutral site to see which team would advance. We played that game in Jamaica, and it went to penalty kicks. And here it is, penalty kicks, five against me, five against them. Whoever wins goes on to the Olympics. And it was 110 degrees out there. Players were, were dying. And what I did, and, and Gelker never forgave me for it, although it helped get us there, that fifth shooter stepped up to take his shot against me. And I whipped off my shirt and I started whipping it around my head and I ran out to the shooter and screamed at him and threw my shirt at him. And the ref gave me a yellow card. I put my shirt back on and, and that sucker hit the ball 20 yards above the goal. And that's how we got to advance. And Gelker chewed me out for that. And I thought about Bill Stevenson and sportsmanship, but in the moment, it, it's like freezing a guy at the free throw line or calling timeout before the place kicker comes in. I needed to freeze that guy and make him think. So it, it all worked out. Now, talk a little bit about the 1972 Olympics in Munich. Um, you get there. Uh, the team is facing some international competition with some great players all over the place. But that really wasn't the story. Uh, the story became one of um, terrorism one of um, just inconceivable horror, not only for the athletes, but the entire world. You had become friendly with a young man by the name of David Berger. David Berger was a wrestler for the Israeli team. And describe the night, one night you're asleep in your dorm room and you get woken up by a security guard who asked you, are you Jewish? And... Describe that moment and what transpired afterwards. Hard, hard to talk about it even today, every time I'm asked about it. We've described the journey to get to the Olympics, the dream, the work. I knew David Berger uh, from the Maccabea Games and the Pan American Games. He was actually a lawyer from Cleveland who competed for Israel, so... There's such a camaraderie in the Olympic Village, and, and that camaraderie, that common purpose, that joy of competing uh, against the best athletes of the world, that's what we do it for, and it was shattered. For me, forever. For many people, forever. When I got that knock at 4 o'clock in the morning on my door, our rooms were about 20 yards away, the American rooms right across the street facing the Israeli compound and two German soldiers with machine guns uh, knocked on my door, asked if I'm Jewish. And it was a moment when I stepped back and didn't know, didn't see police, just saw two guys in outfits with machine guns asking if I'm Jewish. And that, and that moment of, of, flight or run or attack, I stepped back as if 
do I have to go after the bigger guy? And then fortunately he held up his police badge and he said, come with us. They had taken uh, the Jewish athletes on the U.S. team into protective custody, uh, about 15 of us, including Mark Spitz, the, the swimmer, because they didn't know whether the attack was uh, isolated to the Israelis, where the Palestine terrorist group, Black September, had, had scaled the fence, attacked the Israeli compound, killed two immediately, and then held the others hostage. And, and we, like the rest of the world, were really watching this drama on TV in, in the room where we were in protective custody. Uh, Howard Cosell, Bob McKay, announcing on ABC to the world the hostage situation that was going on. And in the end, of course, 11 Israelis murdered uh, in, a, in a failed escape attempt at the airport. And look, no way to describe the emotion, uh, the horror, the first time that the, the international world of, of sport had been attacked by terrorism. It's a different world today now, Lynn. You know, I think back to that because we as athletes, the security was minimal. There was one big gate and we used to the athletes go out at night in our track suits, drink beer in Munich, and instead of coming back through the gate where they'd clock us in, we'd hop over the fence and we'd wave to the guards at the gate, right? And that's how the uh, Black September terrorist group got in. They replicated what the athletes were doing, dressed in track suits with bags, hopping over the fence. So, look, the, the world is a crazy place. But, but that at that moment in time, for me and, and all the athletes that were there, uh, we just pray it never happens again. Absolutely. Now, after that experience, uh, you come to the fall, October of 1972. Um, you're thinking about your journey. You're thinking about the rest of your life and what you want to do. Um, you're working for KLM. Um, you're doing some work at Westbury High School. Um, now, where did soccer come in and what did Chef Messing think at that point that he wanted to do as not only an athlete, but as a person for the rest of his life? <laughs> I laugh as you take me back through these memories, Lynn, because graduated from Harvard, just came back from the Olympic Games and found out I'd be drafted by a team I, I never heard of. I, I literally never heard of the New York Cosmos. Didn't know what they were. Um, but I love playing soccer. Uh, and, and I ended up saying, well, uh, I'm going to play soccer. So I played for KLM, the airlines, on a Friday night. I played for this team, the New York Cosmos, on a Saturday night. And on Sunday, I played for Blue Star in the German-American League for a couple of bucks, right? And had two other jobs because I was now married and, and applying to law school. I'll, I'll tell you the moment I signed with the Cosmos because it's pretty funny looking back at it. And then I'll take you through the path to when it really became a job and a profession. So I get this call from the coach at the time, Gordon Bradley, we've drafted you. I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know where they played. I didn't know there was a league. 
And, and Gordon said, look, you're, you're our first pick in the draft. Come down to Hofstra University, and I want to look at you for two days and then see if I want to give you a contract. So I trained. I thought I was really good. <laughs> and Gordon, after practice, says to me, I'd like to talk to you at the Burger King on Hempstead Turnpike. I said, sure, Gordon. <laughs> right? So we get showered. I meet him at the Burger King. And, and Gordon Bradley, tough English professional, played in England, came over here, was a player coach for the Cosmos. We get to Burger King and he goes, uh, what do you want to eat? And he orders a, a cheeseburger, French fries, and a Coke for each of us. We sit down. He's eating his French fries, and he goes, okay, I've seen you for two days. I think you're pretty good. I'm willing to pay you uh, what's, what's the going rate for a rookie. I'll pay you $2,300. Now, I'm the Harvard grad. I'm trying to figure out how to negotiate. I'm trying to think, is that $2,300 a week? Is it $2,300 a, a game? $2,300 a month? I had no idea. I said, Gordon, is that per game? Is that per week, per month? He, he goes, Chef, that's per season. I said, okay. Again, I'm thinking how to negotiate. I said, Gordon, what would you say if I told you how to think about it? And he took a bite of his cheeseburger and he looked at me and he said, I couldn't care less. <laughs> so I signed. I'm in law school now. I'll fast forward a little bit. And I had just started class. And you talked about my dad uh, being a lawyer. And, and this was another turning point in my life, Lynn. Um, I've described how I grew up and my family, academics, music, sports last. And, and I said, Dad, I, I'm at a crossroads, right? If I'm going to be serious about law school, I re really got to give up, you know, the soccer. It, it, it's too much. But I, I wanted to get your opinion. What do you think? And he looked at me, Lynn, and I'll never forget it. And he goes, Shep, you know how you were brought up. The last thing the world needs is another lawyer. <laughs> he said, go follow your dream. So I dropped out of law school. And, and the next year, Pelé signs with our team and the sport takes off. So fortuitous moments in my life, Lynn, where we all can make choices. And, and my choice worked out. Now, a couple of things which allude back to Shep the individual. Um, you're out on Long Island. Um, you run into a, a New York Jet by the name of Mike Battle. And Mike Battle was a safety for the Jets, a little crazy from Southern Cal. And you guys are getting into a little bit of an exchange, and he challenges you to a glass, and I say glass, eating contest. Um, you train seriously for the contest. He doesn't. Describe that a little bit. I, I got to tell you how it happened, Lynn, because you've described me pretty well in terms of my personality, my hair, my attitude, my enjoyment of life. We trained at Hofstra with the New York Jets in the morning, and then we would come on the field in the afternoon. And I ended up being a buddy of Joe Namath. And so it was, it was Joe Namath, Broadway Joe, who was egging me on to say, Mike Battle thinks he could eat a glass quicker than you. Now you got Joe Namath in your corner. You could do no wrong for me. So 
I did it. I didn't practice a lot because that would do some damage. But what happened is Mike Battle never showed up. <laughs> he didn't yeah. show up. So I won by default. And Joe Namath helped me get an endorsement with two, Puma. So I, I was glad I took the challenge. Now, another thing that happened was you get a phone call from a former New York Yankee pitcher by the name of Jim Bowden. And Bowden was one of these guys who pitched for the Yankees for a while. And he says to you, Shep, you know what? Uh, there's this opportunity this, this, this for a photographic session for a magazine. And they're looking for athletes to participate in this kind of specialized session. And this becomes something that not only is unique, but it kind of helps define the flamboyant Shep Messing. Talk about that. There are, there are a couple of layers to that, and I'll get to them. <laughs> but it speaks to my individuality and my uh, joy of life. So that is true. And Bounton says to me, uh, it's a nude photo layout. I said, how much? <laughs> he said, $5,000. I said, I'm in. What, <laughs> what do I have to do? Remember, I'm only getting paid $2,300 for the whole season to play for the Cosmos. So I don't think twice about it. Um, I do it, do the photo spread, and the magazine comes out. I'm still working at Westbury High School. And all of a sudden, one day, I didn't, Lynn, when I did it, I didn't think anybody would see it, right? I wasn't aware. No big deal. I grew up in a very liberal, progressive household. My mother was a professor of human sexuality at, at Nassau Community. So I was very uninhibited. Um, I just didn't think anybody would see it, but <laughs> I was wrong. So that one day I showed up at Westbury High School and all the girls in the 10th, 11th, 12th grade they bolted out to the newsstands to buy this magazine of their, of their teacher. And, <laughs> and I got called in by the superintendent who immediately went to fire me. And then, and then, well, <laughs> the wrestling coach and the soccer coach, they came back and they said, we need Shep here. The kids love him. He helps both our teams. So I, I skated there, but the New York Cosmos, at the end of the season, they put me on waivers and said I had violated the morals clause in the contract. Remember, my father's a lawyer. So the president of the club, and he was he was being he was looking forward. He he we sued him. My father sued the president and the New York Cosmos for wrongful termination. There was not a written morals clause in the contract. I didn't violate it. And we won the lawsuit and we got back a letter that I still have today from the president, Clive Toy. He said, this was the most amicable, amicable lawsuit I've ever had. And if I ever sign Palais, I'll make sure his father is not a lawyer. Well, two years later, he signed Palais. So Pelé comes to June 10th, 1975, Pelé signs. A new era, a, a dawn, a beginning for, not for American soccer from the team standpoint, not necessarily the American-born player. Um, you, unfortunately, 
don't you as you said you you get let go from the cosmos and you wind up with the boston minutemen and then eventually you get traded back to the cosmos and for a while you are practicing with the minutemen during the week and playing for the cosmos on weekends how did that feel Again, Lynn, we talk about moments that change your life, right? I have been let go by the Cosmos, and now I pick up the New York Times. I'm playing for the Boston Minutemen, and Pele signs for my old team. I wanted to kill myself. How did I blow that opportunity to to be on that team with Pele? But as fortune had it, we finished every game with penalty kicks, no draws. So... I'm playing in Yankee Stadium with the Boston Minutemen against Pelé and the Cosmos. It's a tie game, and it goes to penalty kicks. Last penalty kick is taken by Pelé. He argues with me still today. I got a finger on it. I saved it. He says I didn't touch it, but I did touch it. I got a finger on it. I saved it. The next week, their goalkeeper breaks his collarbone and Pele goes to the Cosmos and says, I want that Boston Minutemen goalkeeper. And I get traded uh, to the Cosmos. And again, uh, full circle. I I was born two blocks from Yankee Stadium. Now I'm playing with Pele coming out of the dugout in Yankee Stadium. And and it really is when the sport took off. That New York Cosmo team with Pele and Beckenbauer and Canalia uh, captured the imagination of New York and, and then the nation and then the world. They were really the first Galactico team, Real Madrid and everybody else now, but the Cosmos were the first Galactico team of superstars. No question about it. You had people like Robert Redford and Mike Dick Jagger and Henry Kissinger, who you once said to him, he asked you what, he, what you thought of his speech, and you said, eh, I didn't really hear it. So, I mean, you know what? I mean, that was part of messing being messing, and messing being one of the first people, one of the first American-born players, that Americans, like my dad, who wasn't even a soccer fan, would want to pay to see because you were who you were. Let's fast forward to 1977. You win the championship. I mean, Carlos Alberto, Giorgio Canalia, Franz Beckenbauer, as you said, the incredible team. But at the end of that season, after after surviving an incredible, incredible game against the Fort Lauderdale Strikers, which was a, as, as probably as pressure-packed game as you ever played in your life, um, Pelé, of course, has announced this is going to be his last go-around, his last rodeo, his last games. You do a tour. You go to Japan. You go to China. Um, you wind up playing the final game of his career, October 1st, 1977, in the Meadowlands. The water communication people wind up overselling the game by almost 20,000 tickets. There, there are riots at their headquarters. People are there screaming and dancing and just yelling and wanting to get in that game. But that game was probably one of the most special moments in the life of Shep Messing. Take us through what that last encounter and last ability to play with Pelé on the field was like for Shep Messing. 
Well, again, we, we've talked, Lynn, a lot about me. And, and I'm really, ironically, I'm not about me. I was just so blessed to be on that path, on that team, with those guys and with Pelé. And that's the pressure we felt. We felt both in the championship game against Seattle, where it was our last chance to have Pele go out a champion with a championship ring. And then that final game you described when the world was watching at Giants Stadium, sold out, 80,000 people. You mentioned Mick Jagger and Robert Redford. My big thrill, I'll never forget, coming into Giants Stadium and Muhammad Ali. I grew up a fight fan. Muhammad Ali was trying to get into the locker room to meet Pele. He had never been introduced to Pele. And Muhammad Ali, I brought him into the locker room to meet Pele. And we just felt the pressure to have a good game, to have Pele go out as a winner. And I'll never forget uh, his speech to the crowd where he chanted, he asked the crowd to repeat after him, love, love, love. And then when the game ended and Pele scored a goal and, and there was a torrential rain pour, and I'll never forget running up to, just spontaneously, I ran to Pele with the other goalkeeper, Errol Yassin. We lifted Pele on our shoulders and the teammates behind us and we did one last victory lap around the field uh, for Pelé as the crowd went wild. And I tell people, many people don't know, they wouldn't know, but when I was carrying all of Pelé on my shoulders, my teammate goalkeeper, Errol Yassin, just had his <laughs> a hand on his leg. And when we got back to where we started with Pelé, Pelé leaned down and he whispered to me, Shep. One more time around, I said. But look, it was just a joy, and and to this day, I'm I'm honored to have been part of it. An incredible, incredible moment. Um, you wind up your career in Oakland with the Stompers. Um, you have some great experiences out there, including losing a couple of snakes in a hotel room, um, and then you graduate to the major indoor soccer league where you become a goalkeeper in a game that was, as you say, hell for goalkeepers. I mean, it was indoors, it was in a hockey arena. Um, but that is the beginning of the final journey of Shep Messing as not only as an athlete, perhaps on the field, but now you're becoming Shep Messing, the broadcaster, Shep Messing, the businessman, Describe your life after soccer and up to where it is right now. I'm going to do it quickly, but I'm going to do it sincerely. It's, it's one thing I was taught by my parents and one thing I hope I taught my kids. Find something you love and do it. Don't worry about money. Don't worry about fame. Don't worry about anything else than if, if you find something you love <laughs> – you're never working. So I played indoor soccer. I loved it. It was fast. It was furious. Won four championships in a row. Uh, recently, uh, I saw that the indoor league that I played in, which was once at a very high level, sold out in St. Louis in NHL arenas in Buffalo, uh, St. Louis, Kansas City, Chicago. 
and I saw that the league was still in existence, but not at a, at a high level. And so just a year ago, I put my hand in the air. I called a meeting of the owners. I said, I'd like to take this league back to where it belongs. And they voted me in as the chairman of the league. And the first thing I did was I knew we needed a trigger. Just like in my day, the league went after Pelé. They got Pelé, and that helped the league. In Major League Soccer, they went after David Beckham, and they got Beckham. So with the Major Arena Soccer League, I went after, and I got him uh, two weeks ago, Ronaldinho, the great former Brazilian World Cup player. Ronaldinho will have a team in our league. Uh, again, I think you've got to stick to what you love and, and not go off course. And I tell young kids today, and I say to myself too, there's no secret success, right? The way you climb the ladder as an amateur professional, Olympic professional athlete is one step at a time. So there's no overnight magic for any young man or woman who's getting into a new career. And, and I know you deal with, speak with, interact with plenty of athletes and what do they do in their second life, right? As an athlete, your career is over uh, when you're 35 or 40. And I say to those who ask advice, you have to apply the same method you did to becoming a great athlete to whatever you're doing next in life. I did that in the broadcast booth. I studied, I learned, I worked. In business now as chairman of Major Arena Soccer League, I study. I talk to other business people, other pro leagues. I talk to the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA. I need to learn. I haven't been doing it for 30 years. So it, it's one step at a time. And, and again, I try and stay with what I love. And, and I've been fortunate uh, that I've been able to do it. Well, it's been an amazing life, an amazing career, an individualistic career. Those of you wishing to follow up and learn more about Shep should do so. You should read his wonderful book, The Education of an American Soccer Player, which takes you through step by step a lot of the things we talked about and also a lot of the things that he wanted to do in the future of his career. You could also follow Shep on LinkedIn. You can also follow Shep on Instagram. You can also follow him on Twitter. And there is a site called Signed where you can get different kinds of memorabilia and find out about wonderful, wonderful artifacts that you may wish to own or learn about. Shep Messing, this has been a wonderful experience for me. It's been one of the best shows I've done. Uh, and the reason is that I've had an individual who never wavered from being himself and showing others how they should be themselves as well. Thank you so much, my friend. Lynn, thank you.